everyone. Welcome to Talk in Force. Today, we have a very special guest, Joe Staub. He'll be joining us. And I think the biggest thing to take away from today's call is understanding kind of how do the things that we do in the weight room apply in other aspects of life that maybe you weren't quite uh, aware of. It's also about talking about the history and celebrating some of the experiences that I think often get forgotten. We, we try to push forward as a field. We try to apply new technologies, but often there's a lot of lessons learned um, from the past that can really help us out. And so throughout my career and throughout my journey, uh, Joe's been incredible at kind of helping me stay focused and directed um, and is one of the key reasons why we were able to accomplish so much stuff at Yale. So without further ado, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thank you for that introduction, man. I, I don't get introduced like that ever. So greatly appreciate it. And thank you for having me. This is awesome. Looking forward to uh, getting into the weeds. I haven't talked this depth of strength in a while. So it'll be a nice change of pace compared to what I currently do. Awesome. Well, we want to hear about that. So if you can, just for everybody, um, tell them a little bit about your unique journey. I always joke. Uh, everyone always says, you know, oh, I want to be A, B, or C. They think it's a linear straight line for success. Um, but often every single coach that I've ever met um, has some sort of windy journey. And obviously, um, you've had some critical mentors and critical uh, things that have happened in your past that have shaped you into who you are today. So if you could just share with us a little bit about your history, uh, I think it'd be an interesting time. Yeah. So starting out, um, I'm from just the Boston area and both my parents were, you know, athletic and always went to the gym. So being at the gym is something I've literally done my entire life. Like there's a joke and it's kind of serious that my first daycare was a gold's gym because my mother would go work out every day. Um, you know, to be honest, I don't think I could out bench press my mother until I was like 13. Um, my father played football in college and he's a physically bigger guy than me. I'm little Joe. He's big Joe. So it took me until I was almost in college to be able to outlift my dad. And that was just one of those things. We were always in the gym. My sister and me, we played a thousand sports. We did a thousand things. So using physicality as a means um, for camaraderie and just family bonding, like we would run a 5K, we would go play soccer, we'd throw the football around. Like we always use physicality as a mechanism to be around each other and, you know, watching sports to play in sports. So that was kind of a natural thing for me to pursue this avenue. So then, it, you know, I'm in high school, you start lifting more seriously. I started to get an interest in college to play sports. I was supposed to play soccer. I ended up doing track and field uh, at UConn. And, you know, all of a sudden I walk into UConn and I'm kind of, I'm the little fish in the big pond. I like sports. I like working out. I like the gym. I don't mind working hard. And all of a sudden I'm in like, what I realized was the number one kinesiology program and the best strength and conditioning program in the country run at the time by Jerry Martin. Um, you know, so you literally, I was like a kid in a candy store. I had the greatest and smartest people, literally the people who wrote the books and who hard work was expected. And I remember meeting Jerry, uh, coach Martin on my recruiting trip. And he the, just, he looked at me and said, if you fail, it'll be your fault. And if you succeed, it'll be your fault. And I remember being like, yeah, buddy, let's go. So, I was fortunate enough there just to be wanting to put the work in and wanting to try and get better. Cause I was an average athlete. I, I wasn't really that good. Um, you know, I was just, that's why I did the decathlon. I had to do everything because I couldn't do anything. Um, so I just had the right people at the right place at the right time. And then uh, Mo Butler, who was my strength coach, who's now the director at UConn um, and, you know, the staff at UConn, there's still some there, some of them just amazing people, you know, personal friends now. It was just like, you can get paid to do this. Like I can get paid to be a strength coach. 
no one told me you didn't get paid much, but you know, <laughs> I was like, I can do this as a job. So that just kind of fast-tracked me into hanging around the weight room more, you know, just being an intern. I was an athlete. I was an intern. I was in the classroom. I was in the lab a little bit. I wasn't in the lab as much as other people who were in the classroom um, because, again, UConn was that good of a kines program. We had a great lab. So I spent more of my time practical hands-on. And then all of a sudden, you know, four years later, I graduate with a degree in exercise science. I go into the master's program. I'm a GA in strength and conditioning. And through that time, again, learning from the best people and then also being trusted because I put the work in, I was able to coach, you know, as a 20 year old kid, you know, I was an intern coaching, um, you know, and a helping coach, you know, UConn women's basketball, UConn men's basketball. Um, And then by the time I left as a GA, it was 2011. And, you know, UConn football was at its absolute height. You know, men and women's basketball both won the national title in 2011, and I was able to work with them um, kind of as an assistant, uh, as a GA assistant strength coach, all those teams throughout my entire time there. So, you know, it was an amazing journey for me just to become a strength coach. Wow. And, and again, too, for people that don't know the, uh, your history, when you talk about this time period, you had, uh, as Joe mentioned, the, the knee egg school, I believe that's how you say mm-hmm. it, uh, is one of the top in the world for research but had an incredible partnership with the actual practical hands-on side with Jerry Martin. Um, this doesn't happen a lot. One would think that at schools, if you had a research department, you would want to talk. It's a good collection of people that are interested in the science, um, but sometimes it can be oil and water. But what I think it's lost a lot is that the work that was done about the practical application, not only was that, you know, it speaks for itself. I mean, men and women's basketball, winning all the titles, football, literally leveling up a division. I'm not sure if that has happened at the same time as all the other championships. So they were creating history for the field. Um, And again, the names, as you mentioned, were in there. They're, you know, people that wrote the books. So whether it's Bill Kramer or Jeff Volick or I mean, you could probably help me out on some of the other GAs and people that were in the master's program at the time. this, This time period produced some of the pioneers and leaders in our industry um and then it went away <laughs> and yep. then it uh it dissolved which has unfortunately happened throughout um too often throughout time in, in our history in our field yep and that's i look at it as a natural ebb and flow and yeah i did so for anyone listen i did kind of gloss over it um tom thanks for bringing me back to that a little bit because for me right so i go to yukon and it's normal that Bill Kramer, Carl Marish, Jeff Volek, Lawrence Armstrong, Jackie Van Heest, right? Some of these titans of, you know, the beginning of what exercise science and performance research into the practical application is, you know, they're all in one roof. And then on the strength side, I have Jerry Martin, Mo Butler, Amanda Kimball, Chris West, Drew Wilson, um, you know, interns and people who are GAs, Adam Fight, Pat Dixon, Eric Cressy. Right. I mean, the list goes on. Those are just some of the biggest names most people will know right off the bat. I mean, I could give you 20 on each side that you would know. But those again, those are kind of the titans. So then I go to and just to give you a context, I've never not known that. It's weird to me when I would and then we'll get to it in later jobs and later career when I would go to places and things weren't integrated. I went to from Yukon to Kansas. Well, you have Andy Fry and Andrea Hootie doing the exact same thing because Andy Fry, Dr. Fry, is a is in the Kramer family tree and understands the excellence you can achieve when you, you know, and again, they all put their egos aside to work together 
while having the ability to say, well, I don't have to do that. I have a big ego. So, you know, Andrew Hootie and Dr. Fry put that together. They were, we were publishing research almost every semester with the athletes about certain things. Then I go from Kansas to Hofstra, Katie Sell, Dr. Jamie Jigalahari, and then um, it ended up being, uh, I forget, Dr. Adam, uh, I forget his last name. Sorry, Adam, I forget your last name. But same thing. So every stop I've had, it was normal to be integrated, to be doing research, and to be trying to sharpen your swords. And that went both ways. That was the Kines and Phys XI programs helping the athletic department, and then us teaching and coaching in the academic side. At every stop along the way, I taught a class for the undergrad or graduates, and then everyone else in the strength department did the same. It wasn't like we just showed up for a day. We were literally the instructors. So that integration is normal to me. So it is weird that people don't do that. I, I don't understand how they don't because you can't be successful. Yeah. And I think that as you hit it right there at the end is that when this stuff happens, you see it translate to better education on school side, but you also see it, you know, in results on the field. So whether it's Kansas basketball, they did okay. You know, when you went to Hashra, you know, there was some leveling up there. And so you see this integration and you just, again, as you, you mentioned, the egos really get in the way. And I don't know if that's because, again, as you mentioned, you had Titans. And typically, the higher up people are in their career, the more confident they are. They're less mm -hmm. of the petty kind of, I've got to show my way and flex my muscles. And it, it's sad, but it's also something that I hope that if someone's listening uh, to this podcast, you know, go out on a limb and just go talk to people. I, I, I never forget, I went to Yale. I went over to the engineering department. And everyone said, why are you over here? I was like, well, because you guys are really smart. And I'm just a dumb, <laughs> dumb strength coach. But, you know, you guys build spaceships and you guys do these things. And I just feel like putting more brains around my program would be a good thing. And sure enough, guess what? Mm -hmm. A couple tickets, a couple T-shirts. You know, now you've got an engineering department just like the way that Boyd did. And I'll even go so far as to say I was able to convert the the food and catering person because he saw me at um, – we actually – Yale at the time uh, and still is – is the world-leading uh, research center for olive oil. And I said, why would Yale – care about olive oil so i got to meet um the director of that program and i said why why is olive oil i don't get it we'll come to find out the olecanthal and some of the other acids uh, i forget what the other is it leonic acid or ole, oleanic acid uh is anti-inflammatory and so yale does a lot of cancer research and so the quest is, is to figure out how to use these acids as an anti-inflammatory to bypass the liver and so you don't have to use NSAIDs for pain management so something so little as you know olive oil research and anti-inflammatory stuff can now help you. And so one of the things that we did is we were able to learn about olive oil and then recommend to the football players, hey, could you throw an extra teaspoon or two uh, on your salad or on your vegetables and something small, but understanding the biochemical impact of the naggy knee pain, the naggy hamstring pain, but never would have known. And I remember I went to their the, the international research thing and the catering guy said, oh, are you just here for the food? I said, no, I'm actually here to try to win championships. And he said to me, he's like, what does olive oil have to do with championships? And I said, it's a little bit of everything, you know, and that's what we were able to apply those different domains. And, and again, if you're listening, you might have some really great people that you just need to reach out to. And I think strength coaches by nature, uh, we're extroverted by nature. We stand out in the room. So be that leader to be able to go out and bring people together. And I don't think you'll be disappointed. No, it, it's a great point. And I always look at, um, you know, Book of the Five Rings, Mayamoto Nusashi, right? And this is translated a few ways, but the way I always look at it is, if you know the way broadly, you'll see it in all things, right? So being a decathlete, being a jack of all trades, master of none, 
you know, being a guy who was constantly trying to seek that stuff out because I had no choice. Now that was my natural personality, but I was put in situations where that was the expectation. That's to your point. Why aren't you going across campus? Why aren't you talking to people? Why aren't you, you know, in, in every domain, you know, like there's experts everywhere. So why are you trying to reinvent fire? And that's, um, one of the big things I would always say to people is if you know the way broadly you see it in all things, but don't try and reinvent fire. And also, and this was a big, you know, Coach Martin, Jerry Martin, know what you don't know. And then go find someone who does. <laughs> yeah, and know that it's okay. And I think that, uh, again, all of those things come together to make a great program. And a program is a, it's a magic in a bottle, you know, and it just, mm -hmm. you have to hold on to it and you have to keep it trapped because, Again, it's, it's the combination of people putting in those extraordinary efforts to make things happen. And you mentioned you went to Hofstra. Um, and then, you know, I think what people may not know, too, is then you transitioned out. So I'd like to talk a little bit about what went into your transition out of strength and conditioning. Obviously, I know you keep the blade sharp and still do private um, work there. But what was your what was your rationale to take kind of this knowledge of weights and strength and conditioning? And now how do you apply it in something else? So one of the first things is I had an interesting career trajectory and we kind of covered it quick, but let me give everyone context, right? I was a four-year athlete, did an undergrad. Directly from that, I did two years as a GA and I had a very different GA than most people. I was, if, if I wasn't there, no one was coming. I was the only one writing the programs. I was the only one dealing with the coaches. So I was a full-time assistant in terms of what I had to do as a GA. So that's not what most people do now as a GA or kind of like, I had to do everything. If it wasn't me, no one was helping. Now, don't get me wrong. The staff at UConn helped, but it was on me. They, they treated me like I was a full-time staff member. I go from there to Kansas for three and a half years, working for Andrew Hootie. Same thing. It's my show. If I'm not there, no one's helping. From there, as an assistant. From there, I leave to be the di head director at Hofstra, and I do that for three years. So I basically had a career almost like a military progression in terms of every couple of years I ranked up and also had to move. So that's one of those things I knew that I was going to do because the trajectory of the career kind of determines that. I didn't want that. I, I didn't want to move 50 times. So when I was, uh, I think I was a junior in college and I sat in Bill Kramer's office and, you know, it was kind of like that. Hey, you have a year left. What are you trying to do? He said, what are your goals? And I said, okay, these are my three goals. One, I want to be a head strength coach in division one, because if I am that, that means I am competent and capable to be that. And I did the things to, to earn the right to become that person Two, I want to train an Olympic gold medalist because it's not luck, right? You can't just win an Olympic gold medal, right? There's a lot of people who could become a head strength coach or become, you know, a, a, a big position, but not really know you can't win an Olympic gold medal just on luck. So that was my second goal, which kind of set me up to be able to say, I actually had the skill set to back up my job. My third thing was I wanted to make $100,000 doing this, because if I did that at the time, so this is in the mid 2000s, $100,000 salary as a strength coach puts you in like the half of 1%, right? It wasn't crazy like it is now with football guys making seven, eight, you know, making 100, 150,000 was kind of the most people made at the time. So those are my three goals. So I get those goals because that was my definition of what success was for me as a strength coach. Being a strength coach didn't define me. 
that was how I defined being a successful strength and conditioning coach, sport performance, human performance, whatever you want to call it. Right. So as I'm working through, I was fortunate enough to become a head strength coach. You know, I was 25 when I left Kansas to Hofstra. I worked with an Olympic gold medalist and I, you know, ran her strength and conditioning program, Diamond Dixon at the University of Kansas. She was a uh, 2012 four by four women's four by four gold medalist. She was a phenomenal athlete. And again, I was fortunate enough to not screw her up. That's how I look at it. Like she was so good that I just helped her and didn't hurt her to get her to that point. Um, Then, you know, I made that much money. Now I had to do it not in one job. I had to do it as a strength coach, teaching graduate level classes, side hustling on the side. But my cumulative net of strength and conditioning allowed me to make $100,000 in a year as a salary, right? So I did that. I was 27 years old. And in the back of my head, I said, okay, what am I going to do? So recognizing that I didn't want to be moving around every couple of years. And that was what the industry was really becoming. Recognizing that I already achieved what I defined as success. Everything else after that would be just cyclic. I'd just be doing the same thing over and over, which I get bored too easy. My, you know, my ADD and dyslexia kick in. I can't do that. I can't just do the same thing. It's not my nature. So I said, how do I get better? What naturally gravitated me was the business side, strategic planning, right? I always tell people, if you're a really good strength coach and you understand how to create a training plan and create goals and get people to align to those goals and execute to them, you would be really good in business if you learn the language of business, strategic planning, COO, um, CEO, depending on what your, what your real good skill set is. I saw that. I gravitated towards it. It made sense. I'm an outgoing guy. As you can hear as I talk, I can talk to the wall and enjoy myself, right? So I was able to, again, maximize my opportunities. We ran a business at Kansas for Hootie, Hootie Sport Performance LLC. Got deep into the finances, started reading books, got to Hofstra, did an MBA in management. So I have an undergrad, a, a master's, and an MBA. And my MBA is in general management. It's how to run businesses and, and build teams and be successful. That's what I did for 12 years as a strength coach. I just didn't know the language of business. So learning the language of business allowed me to open doors. So my wife and I decided that we were done in New York, right? We had both had good jobs and we had somewhere to live, but it just wasn't us. We were starting to have a family and that took priority, being around family and raising our kids or our kid at the time, and now we have three of them. So I quit my job. I was like, thanks, guys. Love you. You know, we cheated up. We got the right guy in place. Uh, Jimmy's still the head strength coach there, and he's doing awesome. And I was able to step out with some additional skills, with, you know, again, having built the network, to your point, going out and talking to people. I've been made fun of uh, by a few people how I'm kind of a, a network whore, if you want to call it that. Like, I know everybody. Well, I don't know everybody. I just know that if I want to know stuff, I got to go talk to people. So that allowed me to step into different roles on the performance, um, kind of the performance barrier, the performance out of the fence, I'll say. So working for a sport nutrition company, working for a sport tech company, helping them build their business, helping them develop sales, helping them connect to people. Um, and that's where I was for a couple of years as I kind of really honed in my business skill set. Um, you know, can you sell something to someone? Can you build a company? Can you, you know, is your, does your ideas actually work in the real world, right? To go back to strength, everyone can write a program. Did it work? Did it accomplish your goal? 
you know, like, did you actually do what you set out to do? And then did you evaluate that, audit it, and then improve? Or did you just throw stuff on the wall and cry that it didn't go the way you wanted it to? So I had to do that in business to then get to where I'm at now. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of parallels to business now to strength and conditioning in the sense that there's performance metrics. You, you alluded to early 2000s, and I think back to Boyd back into the 70s and 80s. It was kind of this black box of like the athletes are going to go in the weight room. They're going to flap around, and hopefully on the other end of the box, they're a better version of them, but we don't know how we got there. We don't know what those things are. But as we identified muscle and as we identified power and speed and, you know, you know multidimensional movements and conditioning aspects, uh, we actually can make a difference. And I think it's funny, I, I laugh at, uh, you know, your history and trajectory. And for my own journey, uh, there's some similar parallels. Um, I was very fortunate enough to get the opportunity at Yale to install a program that, you know, walking in, all right, haven't beat Harvard in 11 years, haven't won a title and I don't even know how long it was a while um, and and again just in general uh, it wasn't great and then with lacrosse uh, with Andy Shea saying you know pretty lofty goal like we want to as a Yale lacrosse team win a national title all things that people kind of laughed and I remember writing on my goal board you know these things and then lo and behold within 18 months we kind of accomplished all that and when you get to the top of the mountain you kind of got to search around of what your motivation is and I think the biggest mm -hmm. thing that I'm proud of is you know leaving it better than I found it I mean, mm -hmm. for God's sake, there's a building there that will never go away that, you know, I remember talking about that building in 2016 and everyone said, ah, yeah, sure, it'll never happen. And it did. Thoughts become things. And, you know, now to look at, you know, I know, you know, Coach TJ as well to be able to go say I put in a rock star in that position and I know he'll carry that torch and take it to a whole new level. So it gives you sense of purpose. But now as you move on, what can you do to make an even greater impact? I think that's also somewhere where I have a hard time. When we can look at a force plate and we can say, you know, from a talent ID standpoint, this person has no shot. Or I can look at a program and say, this program wasn't great. And as you said, audit, I mean, you, I want to dive into that a little bit about the auditing of the programs and understanding, you know, did your program work? And more specifically, let's be honest, short of injuring a person, the program's going to do something. But is it what you planned? And I think that's what people forget about programming is I have a biological expectation that I want to bring a person to. I'm going to write a set of instructions of medicine and exercise, but can you knowingly and predictably get them to where you want to be? And that's no different than business. Then in Q2, we need to hit this amount of profit. Well, suddenly now it's this amount of watts or this amount of joules or this amount of blood lactate. Could you dive in a little bit about some of the stuff that, um, you know, you might have seen throughout the years uh, and some of the things that, you know, you think might be the future uh, of our field uh, as it moves forward? So you hit a few things, so I'm taking notes. So I, I got a couple things I want to hit first. So one is I'm going to get into, you know, the testing and the auditing and, and understanding and just you're, you made a great point. I have a really funny analogy around a program will do something. Um, but I want to step back. And one thing as we're going, and, and obviously we're kind of condensing time as we talk, I couldn't have got to where I was without good mentors. And that's in strength. I know I mentioned them, but also in business. So I have both personal family members and now mentors I've reached out to through just emails, cold calls, LinkedIn, whatever, um, from all different areas. So I just want people to be very clear in understanding that as you walk through the trajectory of, of your career or life or whatever it is, 
you have to, in a performance-minded position, right? Like my goal is to be the tip of the spear in what I do. I want to be the best. I don't want to do it, right? There's a difference between being the tip of the spear, the pointy end, and being the hand at the back end, and then being the back of the shaft stuck into the ground for stability, right? They're all important, but I want to be the pointy end. I'm okay breaking because I get to cut something, right? So the mentors I had in that, in that mindset and that culture I try and drive with, you have to have the hubris to know you can do it, but you have to be humble and have the humility to know you can't do it yourself. So there is a big step here of having mentors and having people to call you out on your BS and also to build you up. And I have them fortunately in pretty much every functional domain. I have them in you know, being a dad. I have them in just trying to be a better human. I have them in business, financial business, business management. I have them in strength. I have them in the academic space. So just a big point there to make sure that people build, to your point, the engineers. You went to said, hey, I want smart people. I'm going to go find you smart people. Find smart people. Have, have, let them teach you things, right? And just to make sure, because I sure as hell didn't do it alone. And I'm not that good. I'm not that special. So just to make sure, you know. In what I tried to do, I always had a good support staff and people building me up and kicking me in the butt when I needed to be. Moving over to your testing comment. So I remember being, I don't know, maybe 19 in the summer at UConn. And we're doing this weird thing with these like boxes and they're on tr camera tripods and they connect to the bar and there's these cords and mats and they're giving these kids data and they're doing cleans and stuff and I got to write numbers down a and I remember going to coach Martin and being like coach like can you explain to me what this is and I just remember him looking at me and being like it's the force velocity curve it's a linear transducer it's called the tendo unit and that was it <laughs> he was just like that was it and he just walked away because he had stuff to do so then that put me down a rabbit hole of, well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> so there were things that if you are not collecting data, now again, that can be bastardized. We can talk about how people overdo this stuff. But you have to have something to reference to understand what you're doing. Because to your point, and this is where I'll get to that analogy, doing something will work, but is it what you want? So I remember being, I think I was a junior in college, maybe a sophomore. I think I was a sophomore because I remember being more on the side at this point when this conversation happened. And by the side, I mean, I was more like I wasn't coaching as much hands on. I was still kind of like in the periphery helping. I'm with Amanda Kimball. Uh, Maya Moore is a freshman in college and it's the summer. And I remember Amanda after a session, we're debriefing the session. You know, what do you think? How the girls do? You know, blah, 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 blah. And she being like, Maya is so good at basketball that I could have her come in and stand on her head for five minutes a day. She will still be one of the best players on the court, physically, mentally, all of it. She was like, so really what I'm trying to do for Maya is to make sure she gets a little better every day, is challenged every day, and doesn't get hurt. And I remember thinking, like, you know, you hear, like, oh, gung-ho, we got to do this program. We got to pack up. You know, we got to get stronger. We got to, like, we have to do it. And I remember her being, like, be Amanda, because she's so good, being humble enough to be, like, no, no, no. It's not about what I can do for her that way. It's about what I can do for her understanding who she is and what she's capable of. Because, again, she could come in and have the craziest program. It looks awesome. You know, social media wasn't a thing. It could be awesome for the gram today. But she was still going to be the best player on the court 
because she did so many other things. It wasn't the training program that did it for her. It was the training program was one small piece of a much bigger pie. So that's one of those things too. I think there's a lot of people, especially some of the young people I talk to now and, the, and they get that guru effect where, oh, my five, three, one hybrid triphasic thing is the program. And they don't fill out their workout cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, your, your special concoction of stuff that you may or may not have mastery of to understand how to implement and execute not only in the moment, but over time, doesn't mean anything because you have no data from it and you have no idea the variables you change to create change in performance. So there, there's, there's some, yeah, that's the best way I can say it. I don't mean to be harsh, but it's just kind of the truth. Like yeah, we had Drew Hammond on this summer and he talked about that when he's working with the young coaches, cause he oversees um, an H2F program, a bunch of young coaches. And he, uh, he calls it the, it's called program with a capital P. Which means it's not your, it's not, it couldn't possibly be his fault uh, that the program didn't work. It's at the program with the capital P and trying to get that feedback. So that's where I laugh now when I hear, like you said, this, it's almost like the more stuff I add to this program, the better it's going to be. So it, it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that, and it's a whole bunch of crap. I still, one of my favorite workouts is let's just come in and I just want to see how you grip the bar. Like, can you get under the bar? Do you know what a crash guard is? Can you do a pull-up? And more importantly, and I, and I think Eric hit on this as well in another podcast, was do they understand the intent? Because the best programs, even if, it let's call it not sexy or not new and flashy, the programs where the individuals understand the why, if mm-hmm. I have good, you know, posterior chain, I'm going to get this outcome. If I can, you know, chin what I bench, my shoulder's not going to fall out. It drives mm-hmm. the... It drives the the effort, and I think it also makes and I, and maybe you could speak to this as well. I know Coach Martin was psycho about training partners. It makes you hold other people accountable, and that's where when I walk into a weight room, I'm looking at the training partners checking their phone or they're dancing to the music. They're not paying attention. They're not auto regulating the set, and so I think those are areas of a program that, as you mentioned, there's a lot of elements. But if you don't have those kind of you know core components, I don't think it really matters. No, I, I agree. I don't think it does either. And so the way I always look at this, especially the way I describe it now to people not in the athletic space. So I'll, I'll use more common terms, right? Because I don't want to just use strength conditioning or performance terms because anyone who doesn't know the depth of which we're talking about them at may lose the message. It's EQ versus IQ. EQ, emotional intelligence, emotional quotient, and IQ, raw intelligence. So what we're talking about auditing, understanding the data, that's an IQ thing. It's a quantitative thing. You have to have quantitative information. Math is math. One plus one is two. Okay, that's it. One plus one is two. Did you get to two? Well, do you have one and one? If you don't, that's not happening. So the EQ side is the people side. And that's where, then again, like, uh, you know, Mo Butler, Amanda Kimball, Andrew Hoody, um, you know, Jerry in his own way. Jerry was, for those who don't know, he unfortunately passed away. Jerry had his own EQ style. Some people liked it. Some people didn't. I loved it. I, I, I love the guy. I admire him, you know, as, as a mentor uh, in a lot of different ways. But that EQ style of getting people to buy in, to your point, right? How do you get people to understand failure is okay because what I am teaching you is the intent of what we're trying to accomplish. And sometimes that intent is to go so hard you fail. Because 
I want to see the tip of the spear for you, right? Like maxing is what it is. We can get in a whole other philosophical conversation of maxing someone out in the weight room. The goal is to find the point you fail at. The goal isn't to lift the most weight. That's what people get confused about. When I max out, I want to find the point I fail at so I know what I need to achieve to get better. It's not how much I lifted. It's where could I no longer lift. And that's a mindset shift. That's an EQ thing. That's a teaching people a mentality and an intent thing that I think is lost. Don't get me wrong. Pat yourself on the back for the work you did to move more weight or run faster or whatever your new personal best is when you went to your maximum. But recognize that that quick pat on the back is yesterday's work. You know, it's the Navy SEAL. The only easy day was yesterday. You know, all that kind of stuff. Well, I'm actually trying to teach you to fail and be okay with it because I want you to get to the point where you are so committed and you are so put in mentally, physically, emotionally that you fail. So you can step back and say, okay, what do I need to do better? So I fail further next time. So I continue to fail upward. And that conceptually is a tough thing for people. And I don't think a lot of people view it like that. And again, that's why I don't think a lot of people are successful. I think a lot of people spin their wheels. Yeah, you, you mentioned that. And I, I think back to a conversation I had in one of my one, uh, one-on-ones with one of the Yale players. And he said, Coach, the problem with these kids right now is that they love to win. So they're trying to calculate. And if you think about the psych profile of an Ivy League student, type A, risk averse. So, you know, if someone puts 225 on the bar and they said, go underneath there, how many can you rep out? You and I might be like, yeah, let's just go just rip it and pull it off me when I can't. Someone else who maybe was a valedictorian who's been the best player might look at that. "Mm, I'm going to do four. But realistically, they could have done 10. And so what really kind of was an aha moment for me, and this is where, again, when you work at an institution uh, like Yale with individuals that are very, very bright, they start to see, and he was absolutely right. Because we we don't we didn't have a big board. Oh, he squats 500, 600. Because genetically, you might just be predisposed to being strong, as you mm-hmm. alluded to before. Um, but what we were rewarded was maximum effort, and and not in like oh yeah, you could great effort. No, did you go in with maximum intent, and then were you process oriented? So suddenly it was no longer who is the strongest. Is that you 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 know you slacked off on the third set on a Tuesday morning at six a.m. because you were tired. And so everything was about process. And so when he said, coach, if we want to win, we got to get these kids to love competing and having the opportunity to compete together. And that was a major coaching development milestone for myself uh, as I went forward. No. And as you're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I could name, you know, Ashley from UConn, Emily and Stella from Hofstra. And I'll use women specifically because I have a thousand hilarious stories. Athletics, generally speaking, in the weight room is a male-dominated environment, right? Historically, it's been. So I'll use women as a rare example. Those three ladies who I just mentioned, all like 4.0 superstar academics, all Division One scholarship athletes, right? Like I, I saw them cry because they would fail because they've never failed. So it was cognitively overcoming the – I am not that good compared to everything else. Like, you know, every one of them, one's a CEO of like a a massive company right now at, you know, under 30, the other two, I think one's a physician and the other one's a lawyer or she's a D farm. Like they're successful people in life because they have that capability. But I watched them crack in the weight room when they couldn't, to your point, calculate success because they were failing. 
and again, it, I, I like to think it helped them and, and built them not only in the athletic field, but in life. And I think it has talking to them over time and, you know, whatever, but that's another thing. Like you have to be okay failing. Now, one of the things you talked about, I want to get back to is training partners. One of the things that all three of those ladies had were really good teammates. Now, not every teammate, you know, they always get along with everyone. It wasn't, you know, kumbaya, ha ha, Brady bunch, but they had a little nexus of people who pushed them, who supported them, who, when they were crying in the weight room, cause they failed, it was like, get up, come on, like, let's get better. You know? So they had those people and I've had those people. I know you've had those people, um, you know, Luke Bradford at Kansas, Glenn Kane now at Rutgers, and Zach Zillner now at the University of Texas, when we all worked at Kansas together, uh, and Skylar Farley, who's no longer in the business. I mean, we and uh, Patricia Dietz would jump in with us, Hootie would jump in with us, but mainly us, like, you know, goofball guys. It was always big brother, little brother. Like, someone did 10, I did 11 just to prove a point. And if I did 11, someone had to do 12 because I couldn't win because my personality and my style, like, they wouldn't let me. You know, even to this day, you know, Luke Bradford, a, a, a huge personal friend, but also a role model for me, you know, as a, as a man, as a father, you know, everything like we're up in the mountains this past year in Colorado doing like 30 miles in three days with rucks and gear up and down 14ers. And I know he was hurting because I was hurting. Like I can go to the point where the wheels fall off. Like I'm okay hurting myself. I can mentally overcome pain like that. I, I'm willing to let myself get hurt. He never was behind me. And it was a principle. Like he never chose because he knew that if I was ahead of him, the, the shit talk was coming and he, he, and he has brothers and he, you know, he's used to it. There was no choice in his mind to ever let me be ahead of him in anything. And again, like, so me knowing that the only thing I'm thinking in my head is I got to beat him somehow. How, how am I going to get ahead of him? Because I know I have to, I have to crack him. I have to crack him and I couldn't, but it, it makes us better. So again, having someone like that, and I could go back to college, Sean Smith, who was a decathlete, um, you know, the Warch twins, Sam Smith, um, not really to Sean, Aaron King, the people, Musa Kano. I mean, I remember being 19 under the bar in the weight room, doing an infinity set with 315. So I'm back squatting 315 as many reps as you can. I got Mo Butler and Brittany Boyd and Jimmy Duba screaming at me. I got 40 guys behind me screaming at me. I do like 17. Moose steps up, does like 19. The next week, we're doing the same thing again. I think I did like 23 because I had to beat Moose. I just had to. Dickhead comes up and does 24. Like, <laughs> and he gets off and he's broken. Like he, he, we're, we're done. We're like smoked. And I'm like, thanks. And he just looks at me and goes, yeah, I couldn't let you beat me. So like, I mean, I'm like 19 at that point. So my whole life has been having those people. That's the mentors. That's the friends. So again, if you don't have people who elevate you, you need to find them because you're never going to reach the heights you could otherwise. Yeah, I, I forget there's a technical term for that. And and as you're talking, it made me think about um, when Pam Stuper approached me about, you know, taking over the field hockey team. And she, you know, obviously was an accomplished player herself, great coach. She uh, she wanted to get the weight room call just culture right and where we started. And, and we'll just call it what it is. It, it had room for improvement um, and, you know, squatting and lifting and just call it anything strength or anything, you know, training wise. And, you know, oh my goodness, you can't squat the big blues or the big reds. Again, the weight room was in kilos. It's still five, six years later, still can't figure it out and eat the chart. Um, 
but call it 135. Well, nobody could do it. Well, one person gets the courage to do it and suddenly five other people. And I said to her, I was like, ladies, just so you know, it is biologically impossible for all of you to magically get this strong. And then it became two plates. And then I think I know Coach TJ um, later took on the program and we transitioned to him. And I, I want to say, you know, he had individuals, you know, up and approaching 300 pounds as just a common place. And just, you know, again, they work their way up and they get into these super uh, levels. But there's a journey in time. And, and maybe could you talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you've seen in the weight room? Because I think especially now, uh, what's good for the gram isn't necessarily good for the industry. And people forget what is strong. And, and when I say things such as squatting double your body weight, that's a fantastic entry level GPP. Well, some people are like, well, they got a front squat, single leg squat. It depends on how many DVDs they're trying to sell uh, that month. Um, but we know that, you know, there are purposes. And, and obviously, if someone has an injury or if there's a reason why they can't, but general rules of thumb, what are some of the things that you've seen um, in the weight room that maybe hasn't made the gram? So to your point, and you made this comment earlier about programs being simple. Everyone tries to add stuff. So there is, um, how do I put this politely for people who may think that you have to do all the fancy stuff? Just because it's new and shiny doesn't mean you should do it. It means you should learn about it and understand when you should use it if you need to. But like every area of life I've ever seen, the basics done well will get you further than just trying to do more stuff. So in the weight room specifically, because again, the weights don't lie. A 45 pound plate in my gym is a 45 pound plate in your gym. If I can pull 405 here, I should be able to pull 405 there, right? If it comes up, it comes up. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's the, the black and white absoluteness of strength is great. The black and white absoluteness of most physical performance measures is great. Now, again, that's why I say most running 40s. Is it hand? Is it laser? Doing the vertical jump. Are you on a soft surface in cleats or you're not? So there's some fluctuation. But I have seen some things where it was normal, normal to like squatting twice your body weight was like, like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not like impressive. Like, that's just like. If you can't do that, why are you here? Like, what are you like, huh? Like, you know, so um, one of the, my favorite examples, because it's such an extreme outlier, is I was working with a military um, individual who was preparing for a training course. Uh, very advanced. He was already about 10 years into his career. He had already passed through some um, higher level uh, units in the military and was trying to accomplish something very, very, very few people ever do. So he needed to get in better shape from a cardiovascular standpoint, because what was going to be required of him was kind of the apex of physical humanity with like a hundred pounds on your back. So give him a training program. And I was dumb enough to tell him when you do this session, which was run two 800s. So run an 800, the directions were run 800 meters on a track as fast as you can rest for half the time it took you and then run as fast as you can again. So if it took you three minutes, rest for 90 seconds, and then and just see. And so I don't hear from him for like a week and a half. And then I don't hear from him for two weeks. So I shoot him a message, I'm like, hey man, like what's up? 
And he goes, oh, hey, sorry. I just got cleared to do physical activity again. I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, well, I was doing your workout. I ran at 800 as fast as I could. I waited the time. I ran another one. I passed out. One of the MPs, because he was near a base, or some, somehow, I don't know if the MP is the right term. I might be using that wrong. Um, someone found him and took him to, like, the medic people. And they, like, put him on, like, like you can't do anything. Like, uh, he was, like, a medically disqualified or something for, like, a couple weeks. They had to, like, test him. He had to, like, go get his heart tested and, like, all this stuff. Because he pushed himself so hard, he literally blacked out and collapsed. So I had to remember like working with him. I'm like, oh yeah, like I can't tell you go as hard as you can because go as hard as you can for you is literally till you die. Like he was, he, again, like we're just talking running workout. We're not in combat. We're not getting shot at. But just the, the expression him is go as hard as you can was literally go until he blacked out and needs to be like taken to like the medic. So some of that stuff, like there are people who I've seen in the weight room. There was a guy, uh, UConn, I won't use his name. He ended up playing professionally. He was a basketball player at six foot three, 300 pounds in the wreck, dunking on guys. So they were all like, you should play football. He's like, I played football in high school for one year. I don't know how to play football. So he came up for the team, <laughs> became the starting, you know, the offensive line, you know, six, three, 300 pounds, played in the NFL, I think for like six or seven years, started for three or four teams. I think he started like 50 games, right? I remember being in the gym one day and like pushing on him, like pushing on him. Like, come on, you can do more. You can do more. He's like, oh, I'm tired. I'm like, you can do more. I'm like, if you do this for, I was like, if you can incline 315 for 15 reps, you know, I'll drag the sled for 20 minutes or something. He just looked at me. He just laughed and he laid down. I think he did it for like 30 reps because he was just doing it and talking to me like, how many should I do? Just how many should I do? And he was just looking at me. So if you can visualize someone on a bench with 315 on an incline, a high incline, repping it out while just having a conversation with him. And he got past 10. He got past 15. I want to say he almost did like 22 reps. And he just looked at me, put the weight down, and looked at me and said, have fun dragging the sled and walked away. Like, that's different. That, that's, that's a different level. So when people come into your point, like I've worked with women's teams. Oh, God, the Blues or the Reds or the 45s. You know, I remember specifically a team that I worked with where I think the, the strongest person could deadlift, I think, 155. Two years later, I think we had half the team over 225 for a deadlift for reps, like two or three reps. And I want to say the average body weight was like a buck 30. So, again, going from the average body weight of buck 30 and people not even be able to lift, you know, 135 to now the average of the team being like, I want to say the team average that testing period was like 250 for like, I was 250 for a three RM on a deadlift. And yeah, we had a few ladies hit like 330 ish at buck 30, buck 40. Well, as you mentioned that I can hear people thinking about, well, just cause you can deadlift more and get these big numbers you know, how many people blew their backs out? Because I know specifically uh, in the in my time, I know that there's been people that love deadlifts or just call it love exercise, bench, squat, you name mm -hmm. it, um, in the pursuit of some of these larger numbers. 
Um, the strongest tend to get hurt. The weakest tend to get hurt. And you kind of left with the middle. We often talk about, you know, productivity numbers and then, you know, kind of strategy numbers. And, and this is one of the areas where I have to give you credit is that you would come and lecture to our program um, at Yale. And we use the prediction table files. We use some of the Prilipin files. And, and I would often say to the younger coaches, just remember, you know, Ferraris can't miss oil changes. If you screw up with a Honda, you can drive those tires for six months. You can go a little bit further on oil because, you know, your average speed is 30 miles an hour. <clears throat> but if you overshoot that person at the double body weight or two and a half or, you know, the 40 inch vertical, you're just dealing with much different physics. Can you kind of talk about some of the concepts and some of the things that, you know, if someone's listening that they can go look up and then now actually put in a strategy? Because, again, as you mentioned, as much as you can get people to deadlift, you also knew who not to deadlift. You, you know, back squatting, front squatting, there's different applications because the, the thing that drives me crazy is what's the best? Well, yeah. sports and athletics is a multi-domain project. It could just be show up. Like this person is genetically gifted and they don't show up. Conversely, this person is a hot mess, but maybe they can throw the ball or they've got some other superpower and we just need to reinforce them with enough armor so they can make it to the end of the race. So how do you go about doing that? And what are some of the files or strategies that, you know, I know you've talked to me about it offline, but for people that are listening to, to kind of implement into their programs so they can get great results productivity wise, but also not wreck the Ferraris in the process. Yep. And yeah, Tom, obviously I know getting caught up in what I'm saying as I kind of ramble, I'm assuming the inherentness of knowing what you just said. Some people don't deadlift. Deadlift isn't the answer. I just use an example. So again, anyone listening, don't take what I'm saying is the only, if your deadlift isn't twice your body weight, you're never going to win. No, 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 no. There were people who I never deadlifted because it was the wrong thing for them, both physiologically, biomechanically, and emotionally they just weren't ready to commit to what i needed them to do if they were going to do that so it goes back to that eq i think eq iq thing the coaching the art and the science so what's the best right so something to take away i had a near seven foot athlete who had no training history had an over 30 inch vertical you know was light um body weight wise needed to put on some muscle he was like a baby giraffe on stilts well, for his entire first year, he never squatted more than 95 pounds because he had to learn how to squat. And 95 pounds as a goblet, as a back squat, as a front squat, with a weight vest, with bands, on a leg press, any variation of his lower body utilization. We never went that heavy. He was on the Jacobs ladder learning cross crawl patterns to coordinate himself. We were doing agility work. We were doing balance work. We were doing all these things because what's the best for him in that moment it was to teach him how to be functionally capable with his lever system at the size he was. It wasn't to add 30 pounds onto him so he could bang in the boards and be shack. No, the goal was let's optimize your current state based on just some basic things. Then once you get better at some of the basic things, you can move better. You're in better control of your body. We clean up your diet a little bit. We get you to drink more water. We mentally engage you to understand the intent of what you're doing. It doesn't look sexy, but hey, feel how your knees don't hurt. Feel how your hips feel loose when you're in that defensive slide and you don't come up like crying in pain. Yeah. Okay. Now let's get better at some of the, the quote unquote sexy things. Put a little more weight on the bar. Let's, let's start pushing some people around because we upped our calories and we're 30 pounds heavier now. So that stuff 
I look at it, and again, we're skipping over it, and I should step back and say, it's all part of the bigger plan. Like, you have to step back and look at what's the most important thing today. The best is what's necessary. It's not an exercise, right? I can squat you for strength, for flexibility, for mobility, for power, for mental conditioning. You know, like, it's still a squat. You, you still put your feet in the ground, position yourself, and hip hinge and knee hinge and maintain a good spinal position under some kind of load. Now, what's my goal? Well, that depends on how I'm gonna make you do all those things. Am I gonna load you, am I not? Am I gonna position you different? You know, So people get lost on the exercise is the best. It's not, it's the purpose, it's the intent. It's not only the intent of action, but it's the, it's the intent of what am I trying to do for you and what is the outcome, right? I made a comment earlier about people just making progress. Like, I always challenge younger coaches with this when I, when I go into places and, and you know, kind of talk or give lectures or kind of try and mentor some of the younger kids. Well, why did phase two change from this to that? Why did you go from dumbbell to barbell? Why did you do single arm all of a sudden? What's the plan? Why? Why did you make progress? You know, are you making progress because you think you have to? Are you making progress to kind of offset some of the monotony that you do have to jazz it up? There is a there is a human element to giving some variation. Absolutely. Not everyone's a robot. But why? And if you don't have a good why, I think you're lost on, to your point, like, well, deadlift's bad. I'm not going to deadlift. Or, oh, hey, I read this thing about single leg squat, and it's what we have to do. No, no, no. They're all tools. You know, just like you wouldn't use a chainsaw to unscrew a screw. You know, you might not use a, a flathead or you might use a Phillips or, hey, you might need a star bit. But you know what? You can kind of finagle a flathead if it's the right size into a star bit. But should you? I don't know. Should you? That's a question. Should you? Well, I think you, you hit it right there is that you need to know what are you trying to do? Oftentimes when we would teach program design, you know, the three big questions, you know, who am I working with? And that, you know, you, you ask a young coach, they'll say a soccer player. You ask a junior coach who's, um, you know, got a couple of years experience, they'll say, oh, I'm working with a male. This is their metrics. This is their bench. This is their squat, whatever. But when you work with a senior coach, it's this is an individual from a single family home. This is an individual from a military home. This is a person who epigenetically, you know, comes out of Canada or Scandinavia. This is a person who hates training, who actually, you know, really, you know, had some bad training experience. And so when we would teach program design, the who you could write a 20 page paper on each one of your athletes. And that's just a question of how uh, deep dive, how much of a deep dive you want to do. And then what are you trying to accomplish? And the number of times young coaches would say, well, a little bit of speed, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a lot of crap, like that pick something, put your hat on it, that like you put your mortgage on it, that in four weeks, something biologically will have adapted to what you predicted. And we will then take a percentage of your goal and see what you did and better programs. We should use them again. And I remember Boyd Epley telling me, you're going to write crappy programs, write mm -hmm. them once. But yep. if you don't know how to look at it, it's hard to tell. And then, then you have to set realistic expectations. If a coach comes in and says, Hey, this person's completely out of shape. I need him to drop 20 pounds and this and that, bobbity, bobbity, bot. And you have two weeks. It's okay to say no. <laughs> and I think a lot of young coaches are afraid to stand up to sport coaches where it's like, take this dumpster fire and fix it overnight and not realizing great programs take time, typically three years to turn a program around. But what are those day one basic concepts? And then they might need, and if you'd have all three of those questions, now go pick the exercises. 
And I just think that often gets looked. And, and we talked before this is that oftentimes if you want to go forward, you need to look back for a minute and you mm-hmm. need to understand kind of where you're coming from before you come out with your program with a capital P. No, I agree. So I take a notes again. I have three points for you. So the things that I did by the end of my strength and conditioning career in the collegiate space, I, I mean, I still do them privately more for individuals were so specific they would do nothing. Like you could look at the programs I had for Hofstra men's basketball. They're useless programs for anyone else. They worked for those people at that time, given who the sport coach was and how he trained them at practice. You know, he, he ran the guys a lot. So I didn't do a ton of conditioning with the guys because he did. You know, this is one example. The equipment we used, right? I'll, I'll tell you a quick story in this specific thing of how my programs now are useless because they're so context specific. Well, I had a sport coach who, you know, I, I just got the job at Hofstra and this person was like, oh, let's talk about our program. You know, they, they wanted to be involved, which was a good and a bad thing because it, they had enough information to be dangerous, but didn't know. And then I didn't realize sent my program to a different university strength coach who they knew. And that person is perceived to be big in the, in the industry for this sport and gave some critical feedback. You know, I must not know what I'm doing because I didn't do these exercises. And I don't want to go into too much detail because if I do, it'll give it away. It's, it's kind of obvious exactly what I'm talking about and who, who I'm talking about too. And I'm not trying to pick, uh, the story is more important than the person. So come to find out in one of the meetings, this coach had that person on mute on the phone, listening to me explain what I did. And, you know, come to find out, this coach turns and to the phone is like, oh, did you hear that? What do you think? And takes mute off and this person starts talking. So I'm sitting there and I'm kind of listening. So I'm, I'm processing this all like, wow, that was a really shitty thing to do. Real snaky thing. The feedback makes the, okay. So then I have to detach emotionally and say, like, okay, well, where am I right now? I'm in this head coach's office. I'm relatively new. I got to set the stage. I got to put up a boundary. You know, there's all the, the EQ side of stuff going in my head. And then the person on the phone makes a comment about a piece of equipment, specifically using cable columns. And I, that was when I knew I won. So I interject and say, excuse me, have you ever been here? No, I've never seen your weight room. Coach, have you ever been down in the weight room and really thought about what I'm doing and why? Kind of hesitation. I said, okay, guys. I said, until you're here and understand the equipment we have, while I appreciate your opinion, and I do agree with you, I would do these things with a cable column if I had them. The reason I have to do them with bands and plates is because I don't have cable columns. So while I agree with you, I think we're done here. And I don't need your opinion because neither of you really know what you're talking about. And I was able to kind of stand up and walk out in a really defined moment. So it was kind of one of those points of everyone has an opinion and they all smell, but unless you have the right context, there's no point. So that's why like I, I send people everything. Someone asked me, so getting back to my point of the specificity, someone wants my training. I'll take it. You, you can, I'll send you every file I've ever done. They mean nothing. They don't help anybody any else. They're not for anyone else. They were built around the specific stuff, the specific time, the specific people, the way the program was written with a capital P all of that stuff, right? So now take it one step further. Day one concepts. I struggled this at first. And then, you know, I ended up, um, I remember sitting with one of my assistants doing the beep test soccer program. 
the kids don't start on the beeps and they don't run through the line. So why do the beep test? So she tried to like square peg the round hole, get the kids to listen. Coach didn't care. So I ended up pulling her aside and being like, listen, if the coach doesn't care, there's and the test doesn't make sense because they're not actually doing the test the way you're supposed to do the test. Stay on the lines, listen to the beeps, you know, the whole bit. Don't do it. Have them do it. Just say, hey, coach, I'm more than happy to show you how to set it up. But if you're going to do it that way, that's not like a, a performance metric. Like there's nothing that we can get out of this. And I have I have so many other things, so many other teams, so many other things. Like I'm going to go do those things while you do these things. Because what I don't want to do is, is set these rules for your kids when they don't have to follow them. And then it was like, well, what do you mean they don't have to follow them? What do you mean? Like, you know, it was like, well, coach, like you don't really care if they start behind the line or not. So that's not really doing the test. Well, they should be starting behind the line. So if I enforce that and hold kids accountable, are you going to get mad at me or not? Well, they don't really, you know, so there's always that battle of the big P versus your slice of the pie, which is the little P. The last one, saying no, that kind of, again, I'm, I'm putting them all three together. Saying no is, is key. You got to know what your job is and what it's not, right? Like I was never the punishment police. And I know this is a left turn from what we just kind of flowed down, but it's the idea of I'm not punishing a kid because they didn't show up to tutoring. I'm not punishing a kid because they were late to practice. My discipline was built around what you did when you were on my time. If you were late to me, you were held accountable. If you did something wrong, with me, you were held accountable. And I would tell coaches all the time, I can't build character. You need to recruit better character. People get pissed at me. Sorry, I can't help you. If your kid's late to class, that's your fault for recruiting someone who doesn't value going to class and getting an education. If your kid's late to your practice, hey, that's on you. You don't have a, a, a structured enough program for the kids to actually care to show up on time. Recruit better character. Don't blame the strength coach. Don't blame me and make me the bad cop to do your bidding. Because as we've seen in the last few years, people who've actually listened to coaches and do that lose their jobs because it's a liability and a risk. So, again, that's a different dovetail, but I think they all feel connected in terms of being so specific, knowing what you can and can't do based on the big P and how your little P fits in. And then being able to say no when you need to, not only to protect yourself, but to do a good job. I never forget, I got recruited. I was in a job interview with a head coach and he asked me, he said, you know, how would you handle discipline? And I go, coach, I got you covered. And he's like, all right, what would you do? I was like, I'd sit him out of the weight room. And he kind of looked at me and he was saying, well, no, but like, what kind of punishment? I was like, well, I mean, if you're recruiting the right type of kid, not being able to train with their brothers. And again, for this time, it was, you know, a male team. I said, that should be devastating because they missed an opportunity to train. They missed an opportunity to get better. And he goes, well, no, but if you had to punish them, I said, I just, that's, that's not really been effective for me. And I, you know, I think my body of work speaks for itself. And I said, you know, and I think you'd also have a hard time is how are you going to discipline your starting pitcher, you know, before a game versus your development guy who, you know, maybe is two years out and plays in the infield. I said, you can have different rules. So suddenly now we're going to have a different system. I said, I think if you drive accountability, it should take care of itself. And to your point, if you have people that don't have to train and don't have to do it because they're so genetically gifted, well, then shame on you. You should recruit better. And ultimately, you want to get to the point where in your program, your standards and your goals and your level of expectation of physiology is something that you can't roll out of bed at. And then that's how you know you're in the right direction. But again, sports often has the 
the problem of wanting to fix it now, today, this workout. And it doesn't. It takes it takes reps. It takes days. And, and that's why I keep coming back to it. it's three years to turn a program around to the point of where you're actually pulling the reins back and, uh, you know, allude back to Yale, um, you know, with football and lacrosse. People ask how you handle discipline things. They said, man, I hope I get there first before the seniors do because those seniors were so locked in. And that was the same thing when I was at Salve with our soccer program. You know, that was a program that had nothing go on to win a championship, but the way that those seniors drove it. And that's when you know when you have team leadership, it cleans a lot of that stuff up. So now you can really get into the finesse of what can I do to really physiologically optimize you. But I agree. Many young coaches struggle with the dichotomy of what do I have to do in the weight room, numbers, data, and stats? And then what do I have to do as far as development of my team culture? Mm-hmm. No, and working with people to to achieve that culture, because that culture isn't just in the weight room. It's from the coaching staff. It's what's the culture with the athletic trainer? What's you and the athletic trainer's relationship? What's you and the academic people? Like, you know, uh, when I first got to Kansas, they people would make fun of me. They'd be like, why is that guy walking around? Because when I had some downtime on a Wednesday, I would walk around and go say hi to all the academic. We were all in one building, so it was functionally available for me to do this. Not everyone has the ability to do this because things are spread out in every campus. So in my situation, again, my context made sense. I walked to all the different academic advisors who worked with the athletes. Hey, how's so-and-so? Hey, I heard them talking about he's got some big paper due. (coughs) Excuse me, there's a cough here. He's got some big paper due. You know, (coughs) if you need him, you know, if if he's got to do that tonight, I know he goes to tutoring after weights. If you want him just to come to tutoring, I'll lift him in the morning or, hey, send him at a different time for me. And you give and take and you work together to optimize what we're trying to do. Again, I was what I was the little P. I was one little P of the big P program pie. Um, but I think sometimes people forget that, too, where they think they are the they are the end all be all. And what happens in your and again, context, right? Three to four days a week for 60 to 75 minutes. 14-ish weeks at a time with a three to four week gap for then for 14 more weeks with a three to four week gap then maybe 14 more weeks for four years so in essence over four years you have little to none of their actual time you have probably about 15 percent of their total time well what are you trying to accomplish in 15 percent of someone's total time don't think you can you know don't think you can change the world. You know, you got to have context to what you're trying to do and why. And it goes back to what you said before. Get good at one thing and then move forward. There are very few people who I've ever worked with. And I've worked with a couple who could do this. Uh, athletes and some coaches in, in two different ways. Who could do a little bit of everything and get better at everything. There are very few people who are capable of doing multiple things at once and improving everywhere. It, it, it just doesn't happen often. It happens, but they're the outliers. They're not the standard. What would be some of the things, and I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, about the, the Prilipin table and things like that. That was a very concrete way for my staff to understand, hey, you didn't get enough exposures at 80%. You didn't get enough exposures at 90 or you know what your daily load wasn't terrible, but you've lifted four days at that not so terrible load. Your weekly load is through the roof. And so suddenly now the INOL value is through the roof. What are some of the things that if someone's listening and they wanted to look, look at as far as integrating into their own kind of checks and balances system, what would you recommend for them? So the first is go down the rabbit hole of relative intensity and prelipin. And look at it both in the micro and the macro. And, and I mean in the macro, 
for people? Could you just explain that? Because I know you, you kind of just tossed that out there, but someone's relative intensity. Yeah, you lift the weight and it's heavier. It's not or, you know, okay. pull-up and stuff. To get a little history. So, yep. so everyone thinks normally, right? And this is the textbooks because, it, again, you have to remember the textbooks and the base level knowledge is base level knowledge. So everyone thinks volume goes up, right? Intensity goes down. It's an inverse relationship. Okay. So the problem with that is there are other factors, right? So if, and this is for any strength coach out there, how do you adjust your lower body? This is the question I would ask. How do you adjust your lower body volume and intensity and both intensity in load and intensity in frequency, right? For the lower body volume they do in their sport. And people like, what do you mean? Well, if I just, if say I did track and field, because it's the easiest example, and I just came from a hard running workout, okay, a hard sprint-based anaerobic, high intense, maximal effort, metabolically crushing sprint workout, and I have a very hard squat lift 40 minutes after, does that make sense? <laughs> So maybe it does. There are times where I've had to do that. Again, context specific. So I can never say you shouldn't do that. But you have to understand what you're trying to do. So relative intensity, specifically in the weight room as a micro concept, looks at how strong are you and what percentage of that strength are you using at any given moment in time? And then trying to put a, a, a ratio of the work that means. So if I can squat 100 pounds, if I put 80 pounds on the bar, that's about 80% of my intensity because, you know, again, I'm using flat math. 100 pounds is my best. 80 pounds is about 80% of my best. So I'm operating at about 80% of my best. Now, this is very micro. This is in the weight room, say with a squat. Okay. So if I do one rep at 80%, that's not that taxing. If I try and do 30 reps at 80%, that's damn near impossible, right? Damn near. Some people can, some people can't. There's a, there's a whole other question that goes into that. Generally speaking, on average, on average, most people can do their 80% for somewhere between 6 and 12 reps, right? And again, I say somewhere because what's their training age? How strong are they? You know, blah, blah, blah. There, there's a lot of things. What's their neurological adaptation? There's so many factors. So I know that if I give someone 80%, right, they should be able to do it, let's just say, eight times. Now, if I have them do that one time for eight reps versus 10 sets of eight, what's the difference? Well, there is a big difference because the volume, I did one set versus 10. The intensity, I did the most they could do at that 80%. So you start looking at, what is the perfect mix of load, sets and reps, and you know, overall volume, I'll say volume as not just sets and reps, but also including frequency, doing it multiple times in a day, multiple times a week, you know, whatever, to determine the best end result. Now, I can take that macro and do the same thing and look at, okay, well, if I squat really heavy on Monday and I have to run really hard and fast on Tuesday, maybe I shouldn't squat heavy on Monday and maybe I'll squat heavy on Sunday and have a day off on Monday and then run hard on Tuesday. That's adjusting for relative intensity in a more macro scale. 
then you can do those things at even bigger levels where you're looking at the yearly plan and, and understanding how much frequency, volume, and intensity you're managing to get to your end state. So if I said, hey, you, you actually had a great example earlier. A coach comes to you and someone's 20 pounds overweight after the off season and in two weeks, they gotta be in shape. Oh, we can do that, but there's a cost. Eating, disordered eating, you know, diuretics and laxatives and, you know, thermogenics work. You know, we can probably get someone to lose 20 pounds in two weeks. Now, are they going to be functionally capable of working for you in the sport? Probably not. Are you are you going to risk massive liability damaging someone that way? Absolutely. Are you going to destroy the machine long term? Absolutely. You know, you're going to wear the brake pads out. Every, the body is a brake pad. It has so much it can take before it's done. So, yeah, I can I can get you to lose 20 pounds in two weeks. That's that's not hard. Should I is the question. Right. So the same thing, you have to start looking at how much are you asking someone to do to accomplish their goal? And that's a big macro question. The ways you can determine that in the micro are things like the relative intensity table for load and sets and reps in lifting. The prelipin table, which takes it a step further and starts looking at actual volumes against load and what's optimal to achieve an end result. So if I said, hey, like, again, why is it traditionally like one of the best things? Five by five at 85% works because it's the perfect blend of the amount of reps, the load and the total volume in a given session over time, you know, two to three days a week to get you where you want to go, which is get strong. So that's what those concepts are. There's a lot more to them, but I would say that's kind of the, the quick explanation on a podcast um, to have that micro versus macro sense of you really have to be thinking of how much at what intensity over what given time period at every stage in the process. And again, we'll get dovetail a few other things. I'll close this ramble out with that's why people's programs don't make sense. I look at young people and they have phase one and they have phase two and they connect a little bit and they have phase three and it kind of connects a little bit. Okay, but how does phase three today connect to phase 20 two years from now? And if you aren't having some thought to that, and again, you don't have to map it out. I'm not saying have, this, have that two year plan ready to go, but if you don't have some of that, at least in thought mapped out, Phase three means nothing for phase 20. So why do it then? Yeah. And I think, you know, anecdotally with young coaches, very big into percentages. And I said, that's great. You have a novice athlete who's never trained. So you're going to hit that 72.53 at a meter and a half, 1.5, whatever, whatever. And the person will come out and, you know, do two reps. Well, that's my relative intensity. Or then, you know, you say, but is that really their percentage can you percentage someone who every single day is making adaptations and so a lot of times i remember on that chart i believe correct me if i'm wrong at 90 percent, you're looking at four reps to get a dose and we would say you know are you giving someone baby aspirin or are you going to give somebody you know a vicodin again both are medication both are fine can help tylenol can kill you vicodin can kill you but how do we dose this medicine appropriately and i could not get over the number of times and this is why we started using amraps to start out the front of our sets so in our team builder the front line would say amrap as much as you can up to a certain amount and then that would auto regulate the remaining sets mm -hmm. go do uh I, th I think one of the it wasn't at yale but it was another coach and he said uh yeah my kids are doing great hit 10 10 reps at 90 percent of their max 
It was a really good session. And you have to stop there and say, time out. Clearly it was not. Did they do all 10? Yes. Could they have done more? Yeah, maybe about two more. So we're talking about 12. Find me any kind of research that says you can do 90% for 12. But again, it's a fundamental misunderstanding. And going back to size principle, going back to many of the stuff that's in the textbooks. And again, we were spoiled with Dr. Kramer laying this out for us. Physiology is physiology. And if you don't know the book knowledge, you can very quickly get caught up in the hubbub of, oh, well, you know, I moved at 80% or 90% of my max at, you know, 1.5 meters per second. It's like, did you? Did you really? Or did you not understand? Or, you know, you haven't updated your maxes since January and it's now May. So a lot of times we get a lot of this wizardry um, out of just a lack of some of the concrete book knowledge. But if you follow the Prolipin table, it's pretty spot on. And, and again, you know, do the reps and then ask your athlete, how many more could you do? What's a freshman going to say? I couldn't have done any more. It was so hard. That same load, you're going to go and ask um, a senior and they might legitimately have one rep in the tank. But if you don't train them to know what a maximal effort is or what a very good training effort is, I think you're doing them a disservice. No, uh, agreed. So the one thing, uh, and again, this is an EQ thing. This is a human element on top of this quantitative idea of how to build a training program. So especially with young coaches and they, they, the, the percentage thing and then the progression and it has to progress. My question would be, well, what did it look like? People, what do you mean? I said, okay, so I don't care what your percentage is. You think someone did 135 pound squat at one meter a second and that's 90%. Don't care about that. They moved 135 pounds axially loaded on their spine through a hip knee bend while stabilizing their trunk. That's what they did. What did it look like? Because if the first time I did it, I was heel up left foot, you know, valgus on the right knee, slightly rounded thoracic spine, chin looking at the floor, arm position terrible, not retracted on my right side. And I moved it at one meter a second. And I did a training effect. And a training effect it would be a program, but a training effect to me is a conscious effort to improve. That's not the weight on the bar. That's not the speed of the bar. That is, did I manifest better efficiency in what I was doing, right? Sport wins at speed, okay? Sport doesn't win at just doing stuff. So am I functionally capable of doing what I did before better? So now I have a training effect. That same person moves 135 on a back squat, one meter a second. But what they did from the eyeball test measured through, you know, again, if we had cameras, we could do joint angles and biomechanical analysis measured through, again, just regulated feedback. How'd that feel? Oh, I do this and my knees don't hurt anymore. Yeah, no kidding. Your knees don't hurt because your knee isn't bending laterally when it's not supposed to while it's trying to flex under load, right? So duh, your knee feels better because your meniscus doesn't feel like it's going to explode right now. So What's the quality of what you did? And that was one of the things I really struggled with at first because we didn't have some of that technology. Elite Form helped me leapfrog a lot of people. I, I, Skip and the team of Elite Form, I always give them credit because they don't really know what they did. They, they did velocity-based training and tablets on a screen and programs online, and they did a lot of that. But what they did was they allowed coaches, and now many others do it, and again, force plates allow this too, the quality of movement. I can show someone you did X, 135 at one meter a second, this way. Now, 
you did 135 at one meter a second that way. Is it good or bad? Did it help? Did it hurt? Right? Like one of the things we talked about before, like, you know, the strongest people on the team often get hurt. The weakest people on the team often get hurt. The strongest people on the team often don't always play because they're not good at the sport. They're just strong in the weight room. The weakest people generally don't play because they can't survive the game, even if they're technically or cognitively more skilled than others. So it's kind of finding that middle ground of like, you know, do you want to bench press 500 pounds and use 300 pounds of that when you do something? Or do you want to bench press 315 and use 310? Well, I want to bench press 315 and use 310 for a lot of reasons. One, it's easier to bench 315 than 500. Right. Two, I'm more efficient at what I can do. Three, it's less wear and tear because the time it takes me to get to bench 500 pounds and only be able to use 300 pounds of that bench is a lot of wear and tear on my brake pads. So why put all that work in when I'm inefficient? So I always look at it, take, take that data to the next step. Was it better? Was it efficient? What's the visual acuity? And then use, use your visual acuity to measure that biomechanically, right? My joints are in better positions. I'm applying force better. The laws of physics don't change. Physics is physics. Force goes somewhere. So if my mechanics of application of force are inefficient, that force is going places it probably shouldn't. Is that a good or a bad thing? Sometimes weird forces, forces going in weird places are what make people special because limb lengths, weird muscle insertion um, connection points, you know, just weird genetic abnormality things. The easiest one, Michael Phelps bending over, flapping his arms on his back. He had long arms, big hands, double jointed. If he didn't find a swimming pool, he would have been the best average division men, you know, division two men's basketball player in the world. He just would have been another six foot seven dude with big floppy goofiness who could get 10 points a game. He just happened to have outliers and talent code and some of those books that discuss this. He just happened to have the right set of skills at the right time doing the right thing and was willing to do it. Like it all goes into that. What am I actually doing and how much better am I at getting do to do it versus just doing stuff? So don't fall down the Prelopin relative intensity table as that's it. Just because the, the speeds go up or the weights go up, what's the quality? Right. Well, and knowing where you need to get to. People always talk about, well, what's the best for, what's what number do I need to get to? And we try to talk a lot about the Pareto curve. Of It's not about being the best at anything. It's what's that cutoff. If your sport has a demand of 315, that's a lot different than maybe in the same sport, but a different position. They need to be at 405, knowing where that is. And to get to a 315 bench, you are not very good at 225. You get markedly better at 2315. But for every pound over at 330, 340, and the other trap, young coaches, if you're listening, is that if someone becomes good at something, they tend to want to keep going. There's this inherent bias where many athletes don't want to do things they're not good at. So the big guys that are strong, they don't want to do cardio. They don't want to do mobility. The sprinter, fast, twitchy guys, they don't want to lift heavy things. And so... The question is, what is my threshold and cutoff? And there's a great article we can link to the podcast. And I don't know, Joe, if you've read this one, but uh, who is the best Mario Kart player by data science? And so they went through and analyzed the acceleration, the body damage, the all that. And so they actually go through, and I, I won't, I won't uh, spoil it, but uh, they've actually identified which is the best Mario Kart character. 
But you need to do that with your sport, by your position, by your team, by your team's positional availability. If you don't have good seniors, you're going to have to call up the younger guys. Well, guess what happens when you call up younger guys? Their durability isn't going to be so hot. So what was a four-year career, you'll be lucky to get two or three. So now recruiting, you have to take a different strategy. And again, it all it's all about risk management. It's really not about trying to be the best. If people stop trying to hit home runs on every single person they recruited, they'd have a lot more doubles and triples and on base and more runs. And I think, again, who's that next superstar? I don't know. I just, I don't want turds. I don't want the person who can't play at all, can't contribute because that has massive load implications, both in practice and in the weight room. Yep. And to the other end of that, sometimes you do need someone who doesn't have the potential because they're the right character fit. And they're, they're the glue. People talk about, you know, they're the glue guy. You know, no that's doubt. kind of that old that old basketball football. They're the glue guy. You know, you need that. There, there are, and again, this can, we're not going to probably go into it, but this dovetails into, you know, fusion mind and hive mind and team dynamic. You know, you need the right people. And sometimes that isn't the best player. You know, the easiest example is Miracle, the hockey movie. And, you know, um, Hal Brooks, uh, played by uh, Kurt Russell, is building the team. And one of the scouts is like, but, you know, they're not as good. He's like, I'm not looking for the best guys. I'm looking for the best team, right? And there is a whole level of that, which people don't always get into. Um, and it, it's important. People miss that stuff. And if you do, then, you know, you're never going to be as optimal as you could. Yeah, and when I say that, I don't even really care about what they do in the weight room. I don't even care. And there's plenty of kids I said, I don't care if you ever score a point or do whatever. When I talk about someone who is not good for the team, that is someone who doesn't make the people around them better. That's the person who takes up resources and isn't grateful. And I can think of plenty of players that never stepped on the field, but we would have never won championships without them. But I think having those hard conversations, and we've actually even tracked it, where you can see a, a, I can take an individual who's a, say a junior, senior, or whatever, and put them at a rack with two other younger players and actually make them better. Like we, we've, we've mapped that, we can see that. I can also take someone who's not great, throw them in a certain area of the weight room, and they metastasize and actually bring everybody else down. And mm -hmm. so you can see that. So as a coach, as you're thinking about your training, I mean, that's an area that you have to think about. What, what's that rack like? What can I do? And can I make it better? Same people in the room, just different configurations can actually give a much better outcome. And I, and I want to go to that about designing plans. You gave us so many different plans. And I, I think a lot of this harkens back to Jerry, the Ode to Jerry program, um, <laughs> other ones. Can you talk about some of the rep schemes? And, and why I say this is, um, and we'll, I'll make a point here, is that he had a very, very different way. I think he's underrepresented. I think people need to know the history about what he accomplished. Um, mm -hmm. but so progressive in some of his old programs. And I've personally sat down and tried to decode some of his stuff from the early days. I mean, it's advanced now. And I oh, think, yeah. I think you know, we probably used less than 3 to 5% of it and I had very good results and something I will continue to chip away at. But could you talk about some of the things and then I'll see if you remember the one that you showed us uh, that actually shocked everybody's brain. You might have even forgotten this. Um, but I just want people to understand how advanced he was at his time and still is today. So I'll just give you a, a quick example. So it is six years later that I leave UConn. So it is 2017. I am at an event, and I won't reference. You know, I'm just I'm I'm at an event with a lot of strength people, and there's a topic, and it's a person speaking, and the room has a, uh, about thirty people, and the person speaking I know and they know me, and they're talking about what is 
what people think is like new. And in the process of his talk, he kind of stops at one point and looks looks right at me because he knows me. And he goes, well, yeah, unless you're Joe who worked with Jerry and they were doing this stuff in like 2005. And everyone just kind of like, was like, huh? like, what? Like you did this in 2005? And we were like, so I'm sitting there like, that, you know, thanks. Now, now I'm going to get like 500 questions where I was trying to just get in and get out of where I was. Um, and people are like, what do you mean you did this in 2005? I'm like, oh, yeah, like. This he was doing this for like a decade before that. I just did it with him in 2005. Like this has been going on since like the early 90s. And what I mean by some of that was he understood. Um, I, I think the the thing I took most from Coach Martin about his training and programs was they were simple because simple worked when it was set up well. And you know the ode to Jerry is basically me taking all the old doc old documents that I had of my time with him and basically putting together his summer, his nonlinear summer training program. So it's this eight week lifting program. And it's, if you look at it on the surface, you'd be like, bah, I'm not doing that. That's not Instagram worthy. You do it the <laughs> way it's designed within the time frame it's supposed to be done at. I would put literally any amount of money that you will be better. Yeah. <laughs> Like I, I significantly, just mind you significantly, we use that with our incoming football and kids would be like, what is happening? Like things like <laughs> what is happening to my body? I'm now <laughs> repping my max for 25, 30 reps, you know, in a given yeah. set. It was unbelievable. I'd always go with, you know, and again, just cause you do it doesn't mean it's going to work. If you take the time to do it right. If you eat well, right. If you have good nutrition, good recovery, and you train effectively, again, proper motor patterns, you know, you, you don't just throw weight on and not warm up, you know, you, you got to do things the right way. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping a step there. And I just got to say it for people can't just do it, you got to do it the right way, right? I truly believe it is impossible for you not to improve. Significantly, because significantly. Yeah, significantly, like a, a couple deviations from where you were. And that was the beauty of Jerry, in my opinion, because he had that engineer mind. He had the knowledge of, you know, 20, 30 years of, of doing it hands on. You know, he himself was a great athlete at Syracuse. He himself, you know, what was always pursuing getting better through multiple channels, engineering, mechanical, material science. I mean, he built equipment, um, you know, and then also had the right people. Bill Kramer, you know, who was helping teach him through the textbook and the research. So he was always exposed to the cutting edge and he had the brain to put it all together. So some of his stuff people look at and they're like, oh, that's simple. I, that doesn't accomplish this. And I'm like, oh, just go try it. See what it does. So some of those some of those schemes and and as you mentioned it, it looks very unassuming is the best way i describe it and yeah. when you get into it and you see six sets and you're working at you know probably maybe sometimes for a high school athlete it's the first time they've done six sets and they're like wow you know and it's eight reps and oh it's actually really heavy and oh by the way if you complete this you're gonna ratchet up your intensity for the next week but how is that not overtraining and that self-regulation that's in there I mean, you're just moving a mountain. And so for us to be able to, the goal, and I'll back up, as you mentioned, this is assuming they have mechanics and they've got the coach and, and they've got the you know ability to buy into the recovery aspect because it, it is a recovery challenge. Um, we could get them so advanced within the eight weeks that the summer was actually productive. Like they were much closer to a collegiate plan 
um, than, you know, if they just did any other kind of one-off GPP thing. They got super strong. They got super dialed into their mechanics. And that helped us clean up so much stuff so that July actually had purpose. No, it's exactly that. It's So, again, I think the bigger point here is you have to connect all of those dots, right? Like we're talking programs. Like you, you asked me like a, a rep scheme, like five by five, you know, with uh, f- for strength, specifically to, to build and develop force production capability. Four sets of six, five sets of five, six sets of four in a linear progression, right? At around 80 to 90% of your max, again, depending on what you're, your capabilities are right. Let's call it 85%. Two days a week frequency. You do that for six, eight weeks. You're going to be strong. Doesn't mean you're going to be better at your sport. Doesn't mean you're going to be better anywhere else. Just means you will move. You will generate and move through a cross-sectional area development and a motor unit recruitment efficiency, more absolute load. That's it. I can tell you that's going to happen. It's happened literally like, like like strong lifts and these other things. Five sets of five. Five sets of five works if you do it right. But I could also go to the gym and just do five sets of five at 30 seconds rest and use, you know, 40% of my max and think I'm getting better. I'm not. Um, you know, there's a – I forget who said it, so I don't want to misquote it. I think it's – I think I have the person's, you know, if, um, you know, if doing like – bicep curls and you know like crappy stuff got you better then like gold's gym would feel like all of the olympic team you know like it's not how it works you know like you you fundamentally there's a lot of things that come into play for you to do them right so um not that i'm hesitant to give you more specific examples like jerry's like it was kind of the bigger faster stronger 10864 you know 8866 8664 you know 6642 like that progression worked because to your point, it wasn't just the progression. It was the auto-regulation of if you do this, go up. Like people now talk about like APRE and some of these other coined programs that do some version of auto-regulation, uh, inherent adjustment to volume and intensity. Jerry had those things built into his program in the 90s because he understood there was not only the I coach you piece and tell you where you need to go, but I need you to give me input to get there. And then I measure it and I monitor it. And then I can give you a toolkit, you know, like to actually get you where we're supposed to go. Um, so yeah, it, there's more to it than just the, just the numbers, but you have to fundamentally be doing things to support those the right way. Yeah. And I think for anyone who's listening is that I would compare it a lot to a video game. Many times people throw up on a whiteboard, do 1086. Well, a lot of Jerry's programs would be, okay, go do 10, but I want it to be a max 10, or I want to do two in the tank. And again, as you mentioned, APRE or any of that stuff that's cutting edge, or there's new gurus about it. I mean, he was doing this stuff in their sleep because what they're really doing is trying to get an assessment of what the nervous system's capability was that day. And mind you, mind you, in every program he wrote, and if you talk to Dr. Kramer, and I'm sure you saw it too, if they got in there to do 10 at whatever the way, pick 100 pounds, 500 pounds, it doesn't matter. And they hit four that day, or at four, the mechanics look like crap, you stop. You don't do crappy reps. And I think that is kind of still, you know, something that could be, you know, uh, applicable today where people, oh, well, we'll just lighten the weight. The number of times we would hear, just lighten the weight. 
No, no, no. And, and there's enough research now that shows that the brain is not ready. And actually programming the brain to do a movement with the wrong region, with the wrong mechanics, you're just killing the strategy yeah. and longevity of the vehicle. And so you go in, you do your 10. Wow, I could have done one or two more. Cool. We're in the ballpark. I could have done eight more. That was light. So now the subsequent set needs to come up. And I know Jerry spent way too many hours um, after the lifts auditing and doing stuff on pen and paper. I mean, this is an automatic feature now in your team builder. You just bump it up and boom, automatically the remaining sets will ratchet up or down um, within the three to 5% zone. Um, or we just default for the day. And that's, I think, with some of the genesis of flexible nonlinear where mm -hmm. it's day-to-day -day dosing. No, he made a, a key point there where some of the people, and you've said it a few times, the history, you know, you have things like team builder, love those guys. I think it, you should be using team builder or I know there's other variations. I think team builder is the best because it gives you some of that inherent calculation for you. We used to do that to your point. We used to do that on paper. We used to finish a session. I, I literally remember collecting workout cards from the racks and literally spending the next two hours of my life in my office doing the math on paper, typing stuff into Excel, creating the charts, creating the flows, and then going to coach with data and being like, hey, like, you know, um, you know, hey, Newman, the linebacker did X, Y, and Z. What should we put his first weight at next week? And coach would be like, well, do this, do this. And oh, or, you know, hey, you know, or Newman, the linebacker, you know, the first stringer got hurt. Now Newman, the linebacker, the second stringer is coming up and coach would be like, hey, don't jump him up, bring him down because he's going to play more and we need him good for practice. So coach feels confident in him. So he plays well on Saturday. We don't want to overload him here. So the the gamesmanship of the math and the, and the thought we did now with a team build, like you said, you it all automatically happens and you can just act on the data versus having to process the data. So I think there's a lot of those conversations where people should still process the data in, you know, don't just look at the end number you're getting, but think of how they're coming up with that and what it means and why you should make those changes and, and where. Um, but yeah, man, I, between the discipline of the profession, um, being a professional in the profession, I would say is probably the biggest thing I learned from Jerry. And that's from cleaning the weight room to having the discipline to look at the data and, and make those next day, next next week, next phase adjustments based on the feedback to, to do all those things. Being professional in the profession at all levels um, is something that I think is sorely missed now because of just the, the look at me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Instagram, social media culture. Well, but to piggyback on that, though, I think that has come out of the fact that, you know, what do you do? As you mentioned, you're a GA and, and many people unpaid or, you know, minimally paid or minimum wage or, you know, it's pretty terrible when someone with a master's degree makes less than someone at Walmart. That's kind of you, you kind of have to have a side hustle because, you know, I, I've seen it. You know, you have an assistant on food stamps. They got to eat. And so they're trying to figure out how they can do it. And I, I do think that strength and conditioning is going to have to grow up pretty quickly here, especially I don't, I think it's something like 50 active lawsuits right now for deaths in the weight room and things like that. And I don't, I don't necessarily think licensure is the right path. Getting rolled up into sports medicine. I don't know if those two worlds mesh, maybe there's a way they can inter interface, but strength and conditioning has to become accountable for their productivity. And now with the data we have, I can take a plate, I can take a DEXA machine and I can tell you whether or not one coach is better than the other. 
mm-hmm. over four years, if your athletes aren't stronger, if your athletes aren't faster, if your athletes aren't properly changed. And I say, I say body composition because it's not about dropping fat. It's about putting on the mm-hmm. muscle and having tissue that can actually do a function or feature. Yeah, you can absolutely start grading strength coaches in their ability to produce biological changes. And then if that's done correctly, there should be a productivity increase, assuming they have some sort of EQ element. And then that results in productivity on the field. That was one of the biggest selling points in technology. And this was 2009, 2010, I think, where we were sitting there looking at all the new technologies and things are a lot of money and why are we doing these things? And I remember sitting at a meeting and being young, being, being the GA and throwing my hand up at me like, this is obvious. And again, I, I was fortunate enough to have exposure to this thought process because, you know, my mother is a nurse, my sister's in medicine. Um, you know, I have other family who are doctors and physical therapists. And I also have people who work in the business side and health insurance and all that stuff. So I, I had things in my head. I think other people did it. And I was like, well, if all this stuff does what we say to sports science does what it says, it's the easiest sell in the world. Right. And they were like, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, you just look at your insurance stuff. Because if I'm good at my job, especially in football, football, it was the context we were talking about football. I was like, well, yeah, look at our orthopedic injuries over time. What do you mean? Well, look at our insurance claims greater than $5,000. Most collegiate athletic insurance claims over $5,000 are orthopedic injury related. They're surgery based. Acute maximal trauma. Okay. I took a helmet on the knee and my knee went boom. Great. Well, If I have, and again, some of that you'll never fix. I'm not saying we'll fix it all. I'm saying that if we're good at what we do, measuring and monitoring and making adjustments, we will then optimize people to be more resilient and more hardy physiologically and psychologically to then be able to absorb and disperse trauma more effectively, thus limiting catastrophic orthopedic injury, not preventing it, limiting it. So if I can take a team that had 10 or 12 orthopedic injuries and bring it down to five, simply, and again, some of that's luck, not saying it's all just because of the training program, some of it's luck. But if we could do that and prove that our system allows for those things to happen over a longitudinal period. So if there was a spike and a dip and we maintained a decrease in those things, We've decreased our insurance claims. We've decreased our insurance costs. We've kept people healthy. We've kept them on the field longer. And if giving them the opportunity to be on the field results in more opportunity for success, which means more championships, more championships. I'll quote a a strength coach, banners and bucks, hang them banners, get them bucks. So again, look at the spiral, right? I keep kids healthier through doing by having an approach that actually makes sense. I have a metric that measures it and is is a valid metric. I keep kids on the field, what they came to do, the field or the arena, whatever. That gives them the opportunity to achieve better. Achieving better makes me win more. Win more allows me to have more resources. And then you become Alabama football. That's not the model they approached with, I don't think. But that's what happens is it's it's a naturally positive spiral. So how do I get the money to start? Well, I walk into my sports medicine and my athletic director and my HR people and say, I can lower your insurance premiums. 
I can keep kids healthier over their lifetime, not just at sport. That keeps them on the sport field better. That's why I need $100,000. And if we give me enough time, I can prove to you it actually makes sense. With a little bit of luck and a little bit of buy-in, this can be a great thing. And people are like, whoa. I was like, yeah. I was like, that's how I would approach it. And then everyone just wrote me off because I was like a GA. So, but now that's that's the model I've preached for the last 10 years to people who I talk to at that level is that's what you should look at. Like that's the mechanism to get people to understand what we are doing. And it integrates, it's not again, it's not strength and isolation, it integrates with athletic training, with with everybody. It's an integrative approach, but that's how you have to start to funnel it cognitively for people to recognize the impact. Yeah, no, I think you 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 covered a lot there and and it is is something that I think as we move forward yeah if i if i can produce championships or i can you know cut it in half i mean we would always talk about you know in a collision you're either the hammer or the nail i mean that's just physics and if you are 260 hitting a 320 pound thing you might be able to do it a couple times but just like you said physics that trauma that tissue those joints have to you know take on that load it's just not going to have really great longevity and and whether it's resiliency or longevity they kind of tie in and obviously if your better players are playing you have a better shot of winning I think that gets overlooked, but I do want to just touch on one more thing before we finish up here, and I'm going to take you on a little history uh, trip. Uh, you came to talk to us, and I can't remember if we piggybacked with Dr. Kramer afterwards to follow up, but you had mentioned that Jerry had done, uh, it was 80%, so whatever this the number, probably you or another GA would set for the day, and I remember looking at the workout, and it said 25 reps, and you'd be like 80 or 85, whatever the number was, the weight. If they could do five full five, you would up at 3%. And if not, you know, you would leave it there. But the, the thing was interesting, and anyone who's listening, you just have to envision this. Let the athlete pick the rep scheme that works for them. They could do 25 singles. They could do a bunch of fives, and they could do some threes. They could do whatever. But what was so fascinating about that scheme, and again, this just shows you the genius of what was at UConn back then. What you can start to find out is that your younger athletes, A, aren't confident, B, they think it's just the heaviest, hardest thing ever, so they're like, their their sense of scale is all over the place. Let them figure it out, and you're sneaking in the tonnage and the density and, and the volume to be able to create, especially in this case, in the 25 rep scenario, tissue change, we're going to gain muscle mass, but at mm -hmm. their own pace. And working with the athlete to say, could you really have done two more? Could you have really done five more? And then they could take as much time. And I think the time setting on that was 15 minutes or 20 minutes, something like that. But it was incredible that if you started on a, say a squat or a bench, uh, but just pick squat, uh, you would start to notice that INOL would start to creep up. And then when that number hit what would be considered an intermediate lifter or a proper training load, that's what would trigger them going into some more of the advanced programs, thinking about novice plans, daily adaptation, intermediate plans, weekly adaptation, and advanced month or multi-month. That was fascinating to me that here you go, 20-something years ago, you had the head coach. And again, Jerry from, you know, and unfortunately, I never got to meet him in person. I live, you know, vicariously through you and through other people that worked with him and Dr. Kramer. He was a pretty intimidating dude. And yeah. he let you know. But that just showed his humbleness and his humility of being able to say, okay, you tell me. But all while there's a mathematical formula in the background is like, we can't load this kid up on an advanced program. They think that, you know, doing, you know, 80% for five is end of days. We need to get that right. So any kind of commentary on that, that specific scheme or any of the other schemes um, that he used that kind of were ahead of their time? 
So one, I watched that man in a polo tucked into khaki pants with Doc Martin shoes on, walk up to a bar, no warm, nothing. I'm talking like just walk up to it, clean 225, drop it, and stare at the kid who is trying to clean 225 and just say, that's how you do it. And the, the kid was like, oh, like, oh, you know. Um, I also saw him do one hand, one finger pull-ups, just walk up, put a fit one finger on each side of the bar and do pull-ups. Um, you know, the legend has it. He had a heart attack while running a stadium and kept running. Um, I believe that is the truth. I know that he had to get his pacemaker fixed one day and came, he literally got his pacemaker fixed in the morning, like, like heart surgery, pacemaker fixed, and then showed up at work that afternoon. Um, you know, I, I was there that meeting. Um, so like, you know, he was an intense man. He was about six foot three, about 225, 230. Um, so he physically, he was, he, he was an imposing figure just because he was a big guy, but he wasn't six, nine, 400 pounds. Um, so his intensity. And then the other thing that I think, and this rubbed off on Hootie, there's stories of legend about her, you know, tearing her pack bench in cause she got challenged. He would take on the challenge. So I think some of this stuff, and I'll give you a funny story. I don't think many people know. we got to get Dr. Kramer to talk more about this. He would do this stuff. Like he guys would challenge him and he would do it. And then he would turn to them and be like, well, if I did it, like, why can't you, you know, you're, you're the 20 year old athlete. I'm like the 50 year old guy. So, you know, he had a level of testing things on himself to figure out what worked. There is a story, and I'm going to get a little of this gray. So, you know, like I said, we got to talk to Kramer because I know Kramer was there. There was something about how in a laboratory, Jerry hooked electrodes up to his legs while doing leg extensions and, like, cranked. Like, imagine using, like, a stim machine, but had it on, like, like a Russian-style setting. So Russian, if you use stim, was, like, a high-intensity stim kind of thing. He had it on, like, max voltage, max amperage, like his quads and his hamstrings, like maximal contraction, like almost being tasered while trying to fight through that and do like maximal effort leg press or leg extension or something. And it was like, how do we innervate the most amount of like tissue while also cognitively forcing the body to execute the maneuver? And it was like some crazy thing. And I remember him, he wasn't telling me the story. He was telling someone else and I was there. I think it was, I think he was telling like Mike Barweiss or somebody, somebody at that level, they were like talking old war stories. Like, oh yeah, 20 years ago, I did this. And like, then Jerry busted that one out. And everyone just looked at him and was like, like, that's like dangerous. Like, that's insane. Like you like put your, you were in like full body tetany because you had such juice running through you electronically, like electrically, and you were still leg pressing like 400 pounds, like some like banana thing. And he was like, well, yeah. He's like, we had to see if it worked. <laughs> so there are some things, but again, some of it is, some of it, how, how big the fish is now, I don't know, but you got to talk to Kramer about that one because that is a story that I, I took to heart conceptually of if I'm going to do some of these crazy things that get crazy results, I have to try them and try and understand them. Not just, not just understand them physiologically and mechanically um, through the process of what we're doing, 
but I have to understand them from the life experience of going to do it. So have I done the Ode to Jerry? Yeah, more times than I ever wanted to. Have I done the Husker? Oh, yeah. Have I done the infinity sets? Have I done the crazy things? Yeah. Did it always work and achieve the goal I wanted? No. But I know now how to use those tools for someone else. So I'll kind of leave it on this for anyone who uh, I come from the, the Yukon school. So that's Olympic lifting. That's, you know, barbell based movements. I do machines. Jerry did too. Every one of them do. Hootie, you know, Mo Butler, all of them do. I do hit sometimes. All of them do. I do plyos. All of them do because they're tools. So if I had a novice who has low proprioceptive awareness and I'm trying to get them to fail in a controlled environment, a hammer machine is the best machine ever. Load it up a little bit. They can't drop it on themselves. They can't really hurt themselves. Get them to fail within control. You know, give them boundaries to fail with it. Now, if I also have someone who can, you know, walks in the gym day one and can squat 500 pounds because they've done that, you know, maybe we're going to Olympic lift you. Maybe we're not. You know, there, there's all these different things. But understanding everything is a tool. And you also have to have good context for how to use the tools. And one of the most important contexts is to put yourself through the ringer. You know, when I started working with MMA people a little bit, I, I don't do it a lot. I've dabbled. Cut weight. Learn, learn what it's like to cut weight while you work out. You know, when I wanted to work with rowing, you know, I, I came from track and field. I knew what suffering was. No, I didn't until I wrote a 2K. You know, I, I wrote a 2K as hard as I could. And I thought I knew the burn. I thought I knew the burn from running track and running 400s. No, there, there is no track event that ever compares to rowing a 2K on an erg or in the water as physiologically hard as you can. It, because you're changing what your energy system is supposed to do. You're not supposed to push that hard that long. So context is education. Context is experience. And most importantly, if you're coaching someone, you got to live it a little bit. Because if you haven't lived it yourself, you don't have the EQ to relate to the people you're trying to get better. Absolutely. Well, we will end on that note. Um, obviously, it's a pleasure talking to you. I know there might be some questions about uh, what we talked about today. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you if they want to reach out, talk shop, or just have any kind of general questions? So the best way is my uh, email. So it's joe at thezentagroup.com. Um, so the Zenta Group is my LLC. It's the business name. We have a website and stuff. It's just there. It's more of a placeholder. Um so yeah, just email me. That's the best. My cell phone number is out there. I've had the same cell phone number for 20 years. So if you find a cell phone number attached to me, that's it. It's been the same. Feel free to call me and text me. Just tell me who you are. Sometimes people call and I'm talking and I'm like, who are you, by the way? Um, so introduce yourself, please. Just because I don't, I, if I don't know who I'm talking to, I'll, I'll talk to you because I like talking to people, but just tell me who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. But email is the best. Awesome. Well, Joe, thank you so much pleasure as always. And uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you again. Awesome. Thanks again for having me on.